Hello, and welcome to The Camera Report, brought to you by waterfootfilms.com. This month, our guest is director of photography, Bill Bennett, ASC. His work has been seen by tens of millions of people, but if you've never seen his name in front of the credits of a movie before, that's probably because the majority of his films don't have credits. Bill has made a career shooting visually striking television commercials for companies like Toyota, Honda, Northwest Airlines, and General Motors, just to name a few. His most recent work can be viewed on YouTube. Just search for Bill Bennett ASC or on his website at WFB4.com. Bill's cinematography is beautiful, sleek, and apparently quite good enough to keep him a very busy cameraman. He joins me today from Los Angeles, California. Thank you, Bill, for coming on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. In cinematographer style, which I really got a lot out of your segments in that film, you relate an anecdote about getting to Hollywood, feeling like no one was willing to help you out to get your start. I wanted to ask you, how did you get over that hump, and what kind of work were you trying to get, and how were you trying to go about it? When I came to Los Angeles, I had just graduated college about a year before in uh, San Antonio, Texas. I went to a small school there called Trinity University that had a really good theater program, not really a film program, but I shot films on my own using uh, cast members and crew members from the theater department. And I came to Los Angeles because I figured I might as well go to the center of the universe of the film industry. And that was, you know, we're talking quite a while ago, uh, 30-some years ago, and that was truly the case then. Now it's spread out and diversified all over the country and all over the world, as everybody knows. But at that time, I mean, if you wanted to really participate you either had to go to Los Angeles or New York. So I moved to Los Angeles and thought I could get work, not as a cinematographer, but maybe as a camera assistant. The reality of it is I couldn't get arrested as a camera assistant. Everybody wanted to know what my previous experience was, and student films weren't going to get it. Uh, also, all of my student film work had been in 16-millimeter, not 35-millimeter. So money was running out, so I started to work as a set carpenter building sets. And that's sort of how I ended up in commercials. So because of that, I met Ron Dexter, who was a, a very brilliant director cameraman and uh, uh, met his prop man. And the prop man said, well, you know, and upon talking to him, because I was always interfacing closely with the prop people because they needed specific things like cabinet heights and things like that. So I was interfacing quite a bit with the prop man and he said, well, you know, you should really meet Ron Dexter. So I did manage to get an interview with him. The problem was uh, Ron, you know, got a lot of requests from a lot of people and was nice, but ended up not hiring me. And then I ended up getting a call from him one day. He had left a big company that he had been working with, a company called Wakeford Olaf and moved out to form his own company, and he needed some work done on the building that he had bought to convert, and he had remembered that I was a carpenter. So this was back in the day uh, where everybody had pagers. So I called <laughs> the number, and it was his secretary who was asking me to, if I could come for a day and help him put up a wall. So I literally left my set carpentry job in the middle of the day, never went back, told the foreman. He understood that that's where I wanted to go even knew I wanted to get into film shooting, um, not really didn't want to be a set carpenter. So even though I did that for two years, I left the set carpentry company, went to work for literally an afternoon for Ron Dexter, and I ended up leaving there six years later. Ron was a remarkable guy. He always had a cover story saying he worked for the U.S. Navy. 
in reality, he worked for the CIA. But I didn't find that out for 30 years after I worked for him. And he was in crypto, in, you know, in terms of trying to figure out what the Soviet Union were sending messages back and forth, and had spent a lot of time in Japan uh, listening to the Russians. And consequently, he had kind of that Japanese sense of Zen simplicity to his compositions, which then I appropriated once I started working with him. He was an amazing teacher. He naturally taught in every situation. He would also let everybody shoot. Even though I started working with him first as a carpenter, then as a grip, then key grip, then moved into camera assisting, eventually operating, he would let anybody shoot. This was back in the day where we were doing a lot of sports sort of oriented commercials, and the athlete would only be able to do the event a few times so he would want to shoot as many cameras as possible. And Ron, unlike a lot of cinematographers, owned all of his own camera equipment. So he had like six or seven 35-millimeter cameras, some of them high speed, some of them two Cs. And he would let anybody shoot. He only had one rule. The rule was, I don't mind seeing the mistake in the first take. I don't want to see that mistake in the second take. And you got to remember, this was in a day when the, there were no video taps. The only person who got to see what you were shooting was you. And then everybody else got to see it 24 hours later in dailies, or if you were in a remote location, maybe two or three days later. So if you were screwing it up, you were the only person that knew. So it evolved a tremendous amount of trust between Ron and myself and the clients. And I was lucky enough to have, you know, having shot a lot of my own work in high school and in college, I sort of had the beginnings of how to operate, how to compose. And I also took his advice and took the cameras out and uh, practiced a lot. Not necessarily shooting film, but going out, practicing, panning, tilting, pulling my own focus and everything. Because when he had seven cameras out and I was the only camera assistant on the set, everybody was pulling their own focus. So I would go out and practice a lot. And this wraps around to kind of an interesting piece of advice for up-and-coming people who want to be cinematographers in that you move forward in this business by taking advantage of opportunities that are offered you. You tend to create the opportunities by being available at the right place at the right time. People always talk about, well, you got to be lucky. But at the same time as being lucky in terms of being at the right place at the right time, when you're offered the opportunity to step up and do something professionally that you've never done for pay before, you have to be practiced enough to where you can successfully do it. You have to be ready for the chance. Yes. If I hadn't gone out and practiced long lens focus pulling, when Ron gave me the opportunity on a Budweiser commercial to shoot with the 800-millimeter lens of the Clydesdales riding along the top of a mesa in Monument Valley, <laughs> if I had blown the shot, he probably would have never asked me to shoot again. But because I had gone out and practiced a lot, I was able to do it and step up to that next step. And that's how this business works. People trust you. They give you an opportunity to do something that you might not have ever done before, but you've practiced enough to where you can do it, and then you move up, and then it just keeps going up and up. At the point where you stop practicing, that's exactly where you're going to stay in the business because you have that skill set. So anyway, I started operating quite a bit for him. Then... 
needed to expand my horizons. I'd been working with him for about five or six years. We'd traveled all over the country. And this was back in the days when a commercial project might be three weeks long. We would go out and shoot for American Airlines or Budweiser or Coca-Cola, and the project would be three weeks. Today, it would be like at the most three days, right? Yeah, like three days is a big deal now. Back then, three weeks was not uncommon. And we would do those shows back to back to back. So I moved forward and started working for Sid Avery, who was another director, cameraman. But unlike Ron, who was very, very hands-on, Sid, who now has passed away, he was a very famous still photographer and so totally knew how to light. His genre of work was totally different than Ron's. It tended to be a lot of food and a lot of people. Ron was a lot of sports and a lot of activity, rock climbing, you know, high jumping, horses racing. Uh, Sid was, and that's all outdoors, Sid was all in the studio doing food and people and stuff like that. So that was a nice transition. And Sid would hire me as the operator, but in reality, he would let me light the set. And then he would come in and make little changes. So I was a tremendous learning opportunity from a master in that he let me do it and then come in and make little changes. And after a while, I learned the style that he liked, and essentially I'd be lighting, and he wouldn't be making really any changes. Tremendous learning opportunity. And again, here's another example for younger people coming up. I've run into young men and women coming up that when given opportunities to step up a little bit beyond their pay grade, they immediately insist on being paid for that. When in reality, being given that opportunity, you should be thankful. I wasn't getting paid as the cinematographer. I was getting paid as the operator. He was giving me the opportunity to light, which is really the cinematographer's job. I gladly did it because essentially I was being paid to take high-level lessons. And I learned a tremendous amount. So I was working with him for a couple of years doing the operating job. Then he hired into his group of directors a guy who had just moved over from Chiat Day, uh, an advertising agency, a man named Brett Thomas, who was another brilliant art director over at Chiat Day. As a matter of fact, he was, uh, he was the art director on that very famous commercial that even people today, either they've seen it live or if you're younger, you can go on YouTube and find it. It's the 1984 commercial that introduced the Macintosh. Oh, yeah, of course. Very famous. Yeah, find that on YouTube or Vimeo, and uh, it's a really startling commercial. Ridley Scott was the director. Brent Thomas was the art director for the agency. Well, he used that to move across to become a director, and he had his own sense of brilliance in that he was an incredible designer. He really didn't know anything about cinematography, so now this is a perfect fit for me because now I understood cinematography, I could listen to him and get his concept on film. So we made a really terrific partnership, and that's when my career really took off as a cinematographer. Because this man first started out doing you know, hamburger commercials and such, which we did really well, of course, and then kept stepping up and stepping up. And because of his connection with Giant Day, we ended up doing Apple computer commercials, BMW commercials and really high stylized sort of work and ended up doing, oh, I think I worked for him like three or four years and really rocketed to the top of A-list commercials. 
Well, I'm listening to you talk about your past experience and getting all that experience first outdoors and then lighting indoors. It really seems to feed into what you currently do with not only shooting cars on tracks and things like that, but then also shooting the interiors and shooting scenarios and stuff inside. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's very interesting the way the business works in that as a cinematographer, particularly a young up-and-coming cinematographer, you would like to present yourself and you would like to believe that you can do anything that's offered you. If you're doing a dialogue piece, you could do that well. If you've been given a commercial to shoot cars, you could do that well. And what happened is, you know, I was doing all those various things with Brett Thomas, and then one day we got a BMW commercial. Well, I had never shot cars before, but I had watched a few other very skilled people do car commercials and had gotten an idea of how you light them. And they are very different than lighting people or sets or anything like that, in that you create large reflective sources and you reflect them in the car. That's how you light cars. You don't ever really point lights at them. Consequently, we did this BMW commercial that turned out quite well, and then he started getting more car commercials. Then all of a sudden, voila, I'm the car guy. <laughs> People like to pigeonhole you. Like if you know, I had happened to have done with him uh, a really amazing Reese's candy commercial or a pizza commercial, maybe I'd be the food guy. And actually, Brent ended up doing a lot of tabletop sort of stuff, product shots and things like that. I much preferred shooting outdoors, so to steer my career, I tended to put on more of the outdoor spots, meaning the car work, rather than the tabletop inside sort of work. I did them both well. I just preferred working outside more, so I would kind of steer my career by what I put on my reel. In other words, what prospective producers and agency people would take. I mean, it's just what is it you want to do? Though I enjoy shooting tabletop stuff and I find that it has its own set of challenges, I would much rather be working outside in Montana than in some little hot, dark soundstage in downtown Hollywood, even though I've done both. That's another thing that happens is you kind of, as you begin to get more and more opportunities, you then have to start to steer where you want to go with your career by what type of jobs you show people and what type of jobs you take. Because at some point, you know, when you first start out, you take anything you can get. But then after a while, you start to get offers in multiple areas. You kind of steer where you think your skill set is best and where it is you want to go. After Brent Thomas ended up working for Johns Gorman Films, and then my career sort of expanded out to where I was working for a lot of different directors. Rob Lieberman, who is still a director to this day, does a lot of television pilots, and I did a television commercial for McDonald's that ended up being one of those award-winning, memorable commercials that was shot for the Super Bowl of an older man who went to work for, you know, in a part-time job at McDonald's, and the young girls there know that a new kid is coming to work, <laughs> and they're all tittering about they think he may be cute, and then this older man comes, and they are surprised that it's an older guy, but the girl who's assigned to teach him how to do it, you know, all of a sudden, he's very good at what he does, and it was just this heartwarming commercial that Rob Lieberman did such an amazing job of directing that they were only going to show it once at the Super Bowl. It was such a hit that McDonald's continued to buy time throughout the year and run that commercial again and again. It was a 60-second commercial in a time when mostly commercials were 30-second. People can find that commercial. It's literally called McDonald's New Kid. So you can find that uh, by looking it up on Vimeo or, or YouTube. And when that landed, 
I just got a lot of work because what happened is people, you know, they'd see that commercial and then they had their commercial coming up and they said, well, find that cameraman, hire them. You mentioned story and you always hear cameramen talking about story and the importance of story. Would you say that's how you approach all your work, no matter what the subject matter? Do you mainly think of yourself as a storyteller? Yes. Commercials are miniature movies. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Commercials that don't, just scattergun images, really don't attract people's attention or stay that long or resonate. So every cinematographer is a storyteller. And when you see the script for a commercial or see the storyboard for a commercial, you have to understand the arc of the story. Granted, it is a very short period of time, typically 30 seconds these days. You still have to understand uh, that there is a story and how to tell that story and move the story along. It comes back to Ron Dexter's Zen philosophy. A lot of people think that the frame is complete when you add it as much as you possibly can, and that's absolutely incorrect. The frame, the composition is complete when you've taken away as much as you possibly can and still tell the story in that frame. Then another thing we found happening, quite often agency people lose track of the fact during a shooting day, things progress slowly as you're building your story, as you're telling each shot one at a time. And they lose track of the fact that the story is told through an assembly of several shots. The entire story is not told with one shot. Which goes down to your vision and the director's vision. Exactly. And typically the directors understand this. And you have to guide the agency into how the story is going to be told through a sequence of shots so that they don't clutter each shot and make them visually so complicated that people can't understand it. The audiences today are very sophisticated visually. Anything you might do different if you were to go through all that again? No, it's been awesome, to tell you the truth. The interesting transition has been starting about 10 years ago or so, when Sony first invented a workable high-definition camera, the industry started to make a slow transition that accelerated toward using digital cameras to capture their images instead of film cameras. And, uh, you know, for the first 25 years of my business, we exclusively shot 35-millimeter film. Occasionally, we'd shoot larger formats, and occasionally we'd shoot 16-millimeter I followed in the footsteps of Ron Dexter and have always owned my own camera equipment. I mean, over the years, I've owned a succession of Airy 3s. Those were the first 35mm cameras I bought. Why is that important for a DP to have his own equipment? To have the stuff available when the town gets busy, meaning the stuff is sitting in a vault in my garage. I have the ability to have access to it if the town is screaming busy and you call up all the rental houses and everything's out. Uh, and that includes all the lenses and some of the specialty lenses I need for my work, which are, tend to be long focal-length zoom lenses for the car commercial work, or the ultra-wide-angle lenses that I use for the car interior work. That's important so that the Airy 3s transitioned into 435s and a 235 for a smaller camera package. And it, for a while, I had a, uh, when I was working a lot with Robbie Lieberman and those directors, doing a lot of dialogue, I had a sound camera, a 535A. And then we've had this gentle progression as the digital cinema cameras have gotten better and better towards shooting more and more work with digital cinema cameras. And I found that commercials kind of lagged behind. 
as you may have observed, at least high-end commercials, because the agency realized for their client, they could not compromise how it looked one iota. So they tended to continue to shoot film a lot longer than, say, episodic television did, because they were confident. You know, they didn't want to save a few bucks and then lose the account because one of their commercials bombed. Is that changing now or recently? Changing a lot. The past couple of years, there's been quite the landslide. The, the trigger point at first was Red Epic. Well, actually Red One. Then when Red became an MX, so the quality of the images improved quite a bit. And then the real landslide was created when Alexa came along from Aeroflux. And many cinematographers looked at that and said, you know what? This camera can make very beautiful images, and the images are very flexible, like they were used to with film, and it gathered tremendous acceptance amongst agency people. I did many comparison shoots where we would shoot the Alexa beside film. The agency were very confident with film. They would look at the Alexa images beside their film images of their product and go, you know what? this is gorgeous, let's go with it. So uh, like some very conservative companies like Honda, I did a side-by-side shoot with them with an early prototype Alexa. They, forward-thinking technologically, they said, yeah, we want to see what that looks like, even though they take a risk that it might actually slow their shoot down to shoot with dual camera systems. But we shot it on a real set with a second camera crew, I mean, on a real location, and uh, compared the footage down at New Hat uh, Bob Festa's place, and found the stuff to be beautiful. And now Honda shoots everything with Alexa, and many other production companies are doing the same. What was your angle, for lack of a better word, in doing that comparison or in presenting that idea to them? Were you advocating for the Alexa, or were you genuinely also curious to see the comparison? I have always, and this is another lesson for people up and coming, I've always actively tested new technologies, whether they be film technologies, lenses when they came along. I tend to rattle the cage of manufacturers, maybe pissing some of them off because I will honestly show the shortcomings of some systems, much to the dismay of the PR people at those companies who are maybe saying something is capable of doing something that really isn't. You have to understand that these companies that are making new devices, whatever they are, lenses, cameras, whatever, their PR departments tend to exaggerate the capability trying to attract attention of people who might purchase or rent the systems, when in reality, as a cinematographer, you can't exaggerate anything because you have to know the limits of the system and then discover those limits through testing and then never exceed them when you're actually shooting. So it kind of freaks people out that as cinematographers, we take lenses or camera systems out and test them to find the limits, which means you at some point find the point where they no longer look good. And then that means when you're shooting, you know where the limits are and you don't exceed it so that your work looks beautiful. We need to do that for career longevity because we don't want the image system to fail while we're working. So I do a lot of testing and for various manufacturers come to me and ask me, sometimes I have to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements and not talk about what we're doing until maybe later, whether it be lenses or filters or camera systems. I remember us standing on a corner in downtown Hollywood shooting with Master Primes, 
three years before the lenses were released to the public and freaked out, you know, because downtown Hollywood, every fourth person that walks by works <laughs> in the film business. And every 20th person walks by is going to be a camera assistant. So we covered up the names on the lenses. We had a cover story that they were going to be converted video lenses, which we knew wouldn't be attractive to anybody. And that was the <laughs> cover story that we gave everybody that walked by. It's the same thing with the Alexa. We were presented with a prototype camera. It was no longer secret. It had been announced the year before, but we actually had one of the first ones that came into the country and we were given the camera for a day to go out and test and I happened to be shooting this Honda commercial. So we took it along and a good friend of mine, Kes Van Ostrom, another ASC cameraman, brought his, himself and his camera crew along to handle it and we were able to shoot with the system. Same thing with the 435, 15 years, 20 years sooner. Before that, I was given the prototype 435 to take out on a shoot and uh, shoot with. So I have a reputation of testing equipment, being honest about the results, etc. So various manufacturers do give me things to test. Given that you shoot a lot of vehicles and demonstrated by our conversation so far, you know your equipment. If I called you a gearhead, would that be appropriate? I think that would be appropriate. How it all started was my grandfather was an engineer. He went to MIT. My father was an engineer. Everybody assumed I would be an engineer. I entered college in the engineering track, found out that because I was a very visual person, I could not handle the abstract math that's required for engineering, you know, integrated calculus and all that kind of stuff. I just could not wrap my head around it. I wasn't doing well in it and made the transition over to live theater. That's where I ended up getting my degree. My parents were smart enough and thankfully supported me in that transition. My mom said, we don't really care what degree you get as long as you have a college degree. That was their goal. So they supported me in that, and I continued to take the engineering courses that I found interesting, like physics and, thing, and structures and things like that. And it served me very well over the years because cinematography is a blend of artistry and engineering, artistry and technical. And the people that understand the technical very, very well but are not artists, their work is technically excellent but just bleh. Then there's people who are tremendous artists but can't shoot their way out of a paper bag because they don't understand the equipment. <laughs> So you have to be a suitable blend of both, you know, wear different hats, switching back and forth from moment to moment when you're shooting. Like when the camera system walks up and starts talking about a technical issue, you have to understand that. But then at the same time, the director and the agency creative director will walk over and start talking about the composition of a frame or how this should feel or the emotion this should evoke. Then all of a sudden you wear your artist hat. So you, you become two persons there isn't to my knowledge like an imdb type web page for finding out who made your favorite television commercials does this ever bother you at all or do you ever wish there was a way for people to know who creates what are basically the slickest most impressive short films on the planet in other words television commercials it's very interesting in that no one's ever built that database and it's really too bad i know that some of the more classic Commercials are available on Vimeo and, and YouTube, but unfortunately, quite often, the, the credits are not even there. 
it's interesting. I know this uh, journalist, uh, Bob Fisher, who's been writing about cinematographers since the beginning of time. And as a matter of fact, he interviewed James Wong Howe and then forward from there. And he has an interesting thing he told me after he was interviewing me once. He said, when I interview directors, they talk about themselves. When I interview cinematographers, they talk about other artists that they admire. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, the inference I'm drawing there is quite often in these commercials that are posted online, maybe the director is mentioned and maybe the agency and obviously the product, but quite often the cinematographer is buried. You know, you don't really know who did that, which is, is unfortunate, but you know, I'm not going to cry over, no, there's nothing I can do about that. People know me for what I can do and uh, people come to me for my, my set of skills that I can bring to the project. And for me, that's good enough. You talked a little earlier about you as a storyteller and as cinematographers as storytellers, but while watching your work, I really started to think in terms of moving poetry. The movement of the vehicles and the camera movement and all the things that play really reminded me of some kind of dance. And I wondered, do you ever think of your work in these terms, in terms of, of visual poetry? Well, you, you have to remember that my training was in live theater. The gentleman who ran the department was a very well-known live theater director at the Dallas Theater Center, Paul Baker. And he taught an introductory course called The Integration of Abilities that broke down artistic endeavor into its elements of line, movement, rhythm, color, all those sort of elementary artistic parts. And so that I carry forward even to this day in that everything is a part of the artistic expression, the path the car takes through the frame, the speed it moves, how big it is, the color of the light, the, the music that's going to be behind it. All of those things come into play when we're creating these images. I've noticed that TV commercials, more and more they're kind of getting more effects heavy. And not only that, they, they visually look like Hollywood versions of of like web 2.0 or something like everything seems to reflect that web aesthetic. For instance, you shot a spot for Honda CRV called forecast and you make the point on your YouTube channel that even though the car looks CGI, it's in fact very real. It's shot in an outdoor set by you and your crew. I just, I found that really fascinating. And, and I wondered if you might talk about that a little bit, the increasing integration of special effects and live action, and what kind of demands that sort of new web aesthetic, if you will, puts on you as a cinematographer shooting these commercials. I'm finding I'm doing more and more spots where at least half of the frame is computer generated, and the other half of the frame is something we shoot. In this particular spot you're talking about, we shot the car and the surface that the car was running on and the backgrounds and the environment were computer generated. If you go see the spot on my uh, YouTube channel, which is Bill Bennett ASC is the name of my channel, you can see that it starts out driving in clear weather and then quickly moves into rain, then snow, then heavy snow. And as we're moving along, these environments change very rapidly. Well, we shot that on an airport runway out at uh, San Inez where we're looking out into just low hill fields and low hills. And on the surface of the road, we would put those different environments, first dry, then wet, then snow. Snow was foam that we had sprayed on there, and they had made little hills and things like that. Because the stuff that's directly under the car, it's difficult 
uh, in the computer-generated world to create those realistic interactions of the snow flying and all that stuff from the wheels. So they put that directly under the car, but then everywhere else they created computer-generated snow, and then there was also rain and snow falling. In our commercial, uh, when we were actually shooting, there was not rain falling. We had the guy turn the windshield wipers on at the proper moment, but the rain that you see is computer-generated rain, and we had the car driving on a wet surface, so you saw the straight from the tires. That was a one-take 30. Then I have done the opposite, where the car that we needed to use in the commercial or show in the commercial didn't exist. It's a commercial we just finished earlier this year for the 2013 Ford Escape SUV, and uh, the car didn't exist. So at least not in the version that they wanted to show. You use a stand-in car? We photographed a stand-in car. Luckily for us, the 2013 Ford Escape is based upon the Ford Focus platform. So we got a 2012 Ford Focus, put the proper wheels and tires on that because the wheelbase was going to be the same, then removed all the parts from the Ford Focus that stuck out in the wrong places, like the rearview mirrors were too low, the bumpers were too long. Uh, so we took the bumpers off, we took the rearview mirrors off, then put tracking marks all over it. In other words, getting that stuff out of the way so they don't have to frame it out later. Right, because they were going to superimpose a CG 2013 Ford Escape on top of it. So any, whether you know, because it's a taller vehicle, the rearview mirrors are going to be higher, so the real rearview mirrors were lower, they'd have to spend a lot of time removing those. So we just physically took them off. And then for the very first time, we used the metadata capabilities of the Area Alexa, where we had uh, the lens remote control system, knew where, where the lens positions were, and frame by frame would write into the metadata of every single frame that the camera shot the tilt and roll information, also the lens focal length information, the lens focus distance information, and the T-stop. They would take that metadata and extract it and feed it to the CG software, which would then start to create the position and space of the camera and the CG car. So they found that to be tremendously useful for developing where the synthetic camera is in space that matches the position of the real camera and where the synthetic car, the CG car, is in space. The technique to get the fit is they actually took a uh, Ford Focus and first fit that exactly to the Ford Focus that was really photographed. Once they had that tracked properly, they replaced the Ford Focus with the Ford 2013 Escape and now, all of a sudden, it fit perfectly. Well, you shot another spot. Uh, it's actually a short film that was meant to demo Dolby's PRM 4200 reference monitor, which is a 42-inch yes. uh, flat-screen monitor. It's a beautiful short film uh, of a beautiful vintage airplane, the North American Aviation AT-6, flying over parts of Southern California. I know you shot it with the Aerie Alexa, but I wondered if you might talk about, in this specific case... The reasons you chose this scenario and also the format and the different technical specifications to show off the monitor. That was a particularly challenging shoot because not often before have I been asked to shoot reference material to demonstrate a very high-end display system, meaning this monitor. The Dolby monitor has tremendous dynamic range 
and a larger color space than your typical monitor that you'll find. So they realized that they needed to have original material that had never been color corrected for a monitor that has less display capability. They needed to have raw material that they could then manipulate to demonstrate the extremely wide latitude, dynamic range that this monitor can uh, display. So consequently, we were looking for a situation with really dark blacks and streaming bright highlights, and that's when we came upon the idea of a highly polished airplane. We were originally going to use a Lockheed Super Vega, the same sort of plane that Amelia Earhart was flying, and we found one, but it was in Arizona, so it would cost too much money to bring the airplane here or us to go there. So then we found the highly polished AT6, polished to a mirror surface, And I knew that if I shot that in backlight, it would be very challenging for both the camera and the monitor, but it would also be something of extremely wide dynamic range. And then after we had the idea of what we were going to shoot, they created a little scenario of the pilot, you know, who was going to fly the airplane, simple story. And we shot some of that material on the ground at Santa Paula Airport of him getting in the airport and getting ready to fly. If I could jump in there, some nice silhouette stuff there, too, really showing those dark-to-light contrasts. Yes. Well, there's an opening shot where he's standing in the hangar, and we're looking outside at the highly polished airplane where he's silhouetted, you know, very extreme dark blacks and very, very bright highlights. Again, seeking out, basically looking for trouble. (laughs) But then when we got to the airborne stuff, that was pretty much left up to me. I I happen to be a pilot, so I fly for fun. I own a Beechcraft Bonanza, and I've been flying, flew hang gliders in 1980 and then learned to fly powered planes in 1990. So this is a particularly good fit of another area of technical expertise that I have in that I could could communicate with both the airplane pilot and the helicopter pilot uh, what it was I needed to do. And the airport that you see in the piece is out on Catalina Island, and it's called the Airport in the Sky, where they literally chopped off the top of a mountain. And it's a very picturesque, clean location. goes back to the whole Zen concept of how I like to compose. I knew any other airport around would be cluttered with buildings and, you know, just be distracting. I wanted people to look at the airplane and look at the environment. So we went out there and filmed around Catalina Island and also him doing low approaches to Catalina Airport, and me understanding the performance capabilities of the helicopter and the airplane, the challenge was the helicopter was flying as fast as it possibly could, and I was the airplane was flying nearly as slow as it possibly could to match the airspeeds. And for us to stay with it was a challenge, and as a consequence of that, I couldn't have any crew or agency people or anything along with us in the helicopter. There was just me and the pilot to keep the weight down. So I was having to handle everything in terms of composition, focus, exposure. And here you were shooting reference material and knowing you can't make any mistakes and then having to do those things by yourself. Yes. Well, I was shooting Airy Raw, too, I mean, which is gathering a vast amount of information. And I knew if it was going to be soft or if it was going to be on a, improperly exposed or panning too quickly or any other kind of mistake would be very clearly evident to people looking at the images. We actually auditioned lots of different cameras. They chose the Alexa 
primarily because of its wide dynamic range, because that's what they wanted to demonstrate with their monitor. It has wider dynamic range natively than any other camera out there. The RED EPIC has a HDR mode, high dynamic range mode, but its problem is it's doing two successive exposures. And if you're shooting something like a silver airplane that's moving quickly through the frame, you can actually see the ghost image of a dark airplane and a bright airplane slightly next to each other. So when things are moving fast, you can't use the high dynamic range in an EPIC. So they analyzed all of this and decided to go with the Alexa, which does real high dynamic range, but in single exposures that are blended together. You talked about your Zen composition philosophy. What are some other shooting philosophies that you have? What have you sort of come to believe about production and motion picture imagery that really just drives your decisions on a set or off a set? One philosophy I have that is dominant, and I learned this from Ron Dexter, is crew resource management on set. You surround yourself with the very best people you can afford and that you can find, and then you have to let them do their job. Meaning, even though I started life as a key grip and I understand gripping intimately, I try to never tell the key grip how to do something. I always tell them what it is I need done. In other words, what the end result is. And then let them figure out how to do it. He and I, she and I may discover, discuss different techniques, same thing with the gaffer, about how we might do things. And then here's a trick I use to keep people on my side. I might be lying in bed at night, two, three nights before the shoot, thinking about how I might do this or how I might do that. When I propose the result of how, uh, what I want it to look like, they may come up with an idea that's different than mine of a way to do it. If upon analysis, it's going to be faster or take the same amount of time, cost about the same, I will always go with their idea rather than force my idea on them about how to do something. All of a sudden, what that does is they feel invested in the project. They are participating in the design of the images and the concept. Now, all of a sudden, that person is a true creative partner of yours rather than just an employee, someone pushing stuff around the floor. Because if you constantly tell your crew how to do things, pretty soon your whole crew will be standing there waiting for you to tell them what to do rather than working as a team in concert with you. And then it pays off in another place, too. At the end of the day, there's always that you know, two-minute drill at the end of the day when there's the sun's two fingers above the horizon, and you've got three shots to get. If the crew is truly invested in the project, they will make that happen. But if you've been merely telling them what to do all the time, they really don't care. They'll be looking at their watches going, you know, I don't think Bill's going to get all these shots today. Do you? <laughs> what advice would you give young cinematographers who want to do what you do, who want to shoot commercials? Work as much as you possibly can. Now, that sounds overly simplistic, but many times when you're first starting out, you actually have to get on set and be seen working. Whether that means you have to volunteer in a position that you normally don't work in, say you want to be a cinematographer and you're, say, a camera assistant or not even that, you can say, listen, let me come and shoot another camera for free. What people who are coming up in the business don't realize is the people in sort of what you might call management position, be it myself, producers, 
are always looking at the people who are up and coming, trying to figure out who would be a good person in an upcoming situation. If you're there and I see you working and I see you're doing a good job, then the next time around when an opportunity presents itself to be a camera assistant, to shoot a second camera, I'll go, oh, yeah, Eric, yeah, I remember he did a great job. I'll call him. But if you're not there, you're not in the realm of possibility. So you have to be there. You have to figure out how to be there and be seen and be producing good work. And the whole business is based upon trust. I have to trust that you will do a good job. But if I can't see you performing, I can't develop that level of trust. So you have to get on set and you have to work, however that happens. And, of course, you want to get paid for your work. But at first, you have to be willing to volunteer in positions. I did a lot of spec work early on when I was starting in my career just to get things done, just to get things seen. Like, remember I said early on in the conversation that I had showed up in Hollywood only having shot 16 millimeter commercials. And that was being used as a gateway. They would, everybody I talked to said, well, if you shot 35, I'd have to say no. I actually, on a weekend, rented a camera, 2C and some lenses and got some film and went out and shot a spec commercial in 35 millimeter, just so that when they asked that question, they could say, well, have you shot 35 millimeter? I say, yeah, sure. And I could hand them a reel and say, look, look at this. To get off that step, I had to do that all on my own. You have to be willing to do spec work, pay your own way into that somehow to be able to have things to show. Trust me, these days it's a lot easier because cameras are readily available. I mean, the Canon 5D Mark II, now the Mark III, is an affordable thing. Either you can buy one yourself or they rent for not a whole lot of money. You can go out and do some really excellent-looking work. I own one myself. You can go out and do some really excellent work without spending a ton of money to create your own spec reel to show people what you can do. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure for me. I wanted to share with our listeners your website. If they're interested in checking out your work, you can find Bill's work at www.wfb4, that's W-F uh, as in Frank, B as in boy, 4.com. And uh, there's some really beautiful stuff there that you can check out. Thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks again to Bill Bennett ASC, and thank you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report, produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. Have comments or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at waterfootfilms.com. For more episodes of The Camera Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and then click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, Search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us to see updates. I'm Sean Malone. Thanks for listening.